Welcome to the Informed Pregnancy and Parenting Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. L.A. Berlin, and today I'm joined by renowned maternal fetal medical specialist, OBGYN, and all-around swell guy, Dr. Milo Shabira. Hi. Welcome back. And certified nurse midwife, women's health nurse practitioner, and catcher of our fourth baby, David Kalsa. Hello. Welcome back. Mm-hmm. Uh, in this episode, we're going to talk about a topic that I know very little about and that I sometimes see come up at the office, so I'm really curious to learn more. That makes two of us. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That probably makes all of us. And then also, I feel like our patients have a hard time getting solid information on the topic. Mm. Uh, What we're talking about is intrahepatic cholestasis of pregnancy, sometimes known as ICP, or just cholestasis. All right, what is, uh, let's just even break down the term, intrahepatic cholestasis of pregnancy. What does that mean? So this is a uh, a condition where during the pregnancy, the liver's ability to produce bile is impaired. Okay, so bile is a fluid that's made by the liver, and it helps you digest fatty foods. So the liver makes the bile and stores it up in your gallbladder. Your gallbladder is attached to the intestine, and when you eat a meal, particularly if it contains, you know, fat within it then your gallbladder squirts some of this bile into the intestine to help you digest food. So that's one of the many, many things that your liver is doing is generating bile. So there's a bile synthesis pathway that, as it turns out, is uh, slowed down by hormones, particularly estrogen. So during pregnancy, this production of bile normally slows down. But in some women... It's enough of a slowdown that you get an accumulation of these bile acids that then spill out into the bloodstream, and you can detect that through testing bile acid levels with a blood test. And just to to be clear, so the body's slowing down its production of bile, because it sounds like you would have too much bile if it's spilling out into the bloodstream. But it's the transport of the bile through the normal pathway, so things start to back up in the in the bile synthesis pathway. So it's precursors to the bile? Right. Mm-hmm. That's what's backing up. Right. So the storage tanks are full, getting ready to make bile. Bile's not being made. The storage tanks back up. Right. And it's those acids that end up in the blood. Right. So if we're breaking down the word, intrahepatic means inside the liver. liver. Mm-hmm. Cholestasis? Um, stasis means being still. Yeah. Okay. Think about like absence of flow. So like the bile fluids are slowing. Okay. And coli is gallbladder? Right. And then of pregnancy. So does this sometimes happen not during pregnancy? Well, there are people that have cholestatic conditions that don't have anything to do with pregnancy. And it's probably a similar kind of thing. It's just worse. So it manifests outside of pregnancy. Uh, The other thing is women that normally do not have the issue but then develop cholestasis in pregnancy, one of the things that has been observed is sometimes you put them on birth control pills and you see the same effect and they develop this uh, cholestasis Mm -hmm. kind of picture. So not during pregnancy. Not during pregnancy. (laughs) If they go on birth control pills, they may also develop a cholestasis. Okay. About how common is it during pregnancy? So it it depends on the ethnicity of the population. In in Caucasians, it's something less than 1%. Uh, In Hispanic women, there are a couple of studies showing an incidence as high as 5%, so that'd be 1 in 20 moms. Wow. So not super rare. 
One in 20 is really not rare. Yeah. Yeah. Um, does it run in families? Um, it definitely can run in families. Yeah. And the mechanism of this is not 100% worked out, but a lot of it has been. So there are genes that have been identified in this biosynthesis pathway, and there are abnormal versions of those genes have been identified in women who have this cholestasis condition. So there seems to be a, a genetic predisposition, and so obviously that's something that, that might run in families. Can you test for it? Beforehand, and would there even be a practical reason why you would test for it? Yeah, I mean, these are things that could be done in a research kind of setting, but they're not really done for for clinical Clinical. reasons. Oh, you mean to see if a woman had the gene? Right. But a woman that's had cholestasis in one pregnancy is like 50%. More likely to have it again. again. Oh, wow. Right, around 50%. Yeah. Yeah. Where in the pregnancy does it start to develop? Like how long into the pregnancy? So that's also variable. It commonly is a third trimester condition. However, you sometimes will see it in the second trimester. And I've seen a handful of women who had this shortly after the first trimester. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. And I've experienced where, you know, they are seeing the obstetrician and the obstetrician is telling them you cannot possibly have this condition. Because it's too early? Because it's too early, but they have all the symptoms, and you do the blood test, and they have it. So Mm -hmm. in rare cases, it can happen pretty early in pregnancy. Mm -hmm. Do you test for it routinely? Um, No. Typically, the trigger for testing for it is maternal symptoms. Okay, what kind of symptoms? And the the symptom is is, uh, generally itching. And the classic itching is it's really everywhere in the body including the soles of the feet and the palms of the hands. And -hmm. it's in the absence of a rash. So in pregnancy, for example, if you have a mom who her belly is really itchy and she has, you know, a lot of these uh, stria or stretch marks, that's a different pregnancy-related condition. Mm -hmm. Um, So if she's itching everywhere and there's no rash, you start to think about the possibility that this is cholestasis. And that's and what triggers the, the, the lab evaluation. What kind of lab? A couple of things we look for, number one, is bile acids. And number two, there are some liver enzymes that in some cases will become elevated. Uh, so we'll, mm-hmm. we'll check for those things. Uh, is that a blood test? It's a blood test. And is it a blood test that you get results pretty quickly or does something have to culture? You know, liver enzymes you can get the same day. One of the difficulties with managing this condition is that the bile acids will take several days, sometimes five to seven. Mm-hmm. So that makes the testing a little bit difficult because you send it off and then you don't get the result. Yeah, mentally difficult and clinically difficult to manage. Yeah. Yeah. Um, why does it take so long to get the bile acid reading? Um, I think you'd have to ask a lab technician right. that okay. question. I don't know actually the mechanics of how it's done. Yeah. I'm just going to shark tank my 24-hour bile acid tests. <laughs> That's what goes into my head. I mean, it just But it be... takes long no matter where you do it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there must be something about the process that takes time to flush out. Mm. Or, or maybe it's uh, done in a centralized lab somewhere and it's, you know, shipping of the specimen. Is Underground the issue. bunker yeah. in Utah. Who knows? <laughs> Uh, All right, let's take a quick break because there's a lot more to talk about regarding cholestasis. Don't go anywhere. We will be right back. (laughs) 
Hey everyone, it's Dr. Berlin, and I want to talk to you about something that is close to my heart, literally, omega-3. It's a crucial nutrient that's sadly overlooked. With 95% of women deficient, Needed, the supplement brand I trust, created their brand new omega-3 soft gels. Designed by perinatal experts, they support you and your baby's well-being from fertility to pregnancy and beyond. Unlike other brands, Needed's Omega-3 is sustainable, pesticide-free, and third-party tested for purity. Plus, my favorite, it has a milder taste and smell, perfect for sensitive mamas. Don't wait. Visit thisisneeded.com and use code BERLIN to get 20% off your initial order. Experience the needed difference, consciously crafted for your health and the planet. Welcome back to the Informed Pregnancy Podcast. We are talking about cholestasis. Okay, so if somebody's listening to the first segment of this podcast and they have GJA, you guys know what GJA is? No. Generalized Jewish anxiety. (laughs) (laughs) And they hear that itch could mean, you know, cholestasis, which could be significant. They're automatically going to think, oh, my God, I have that. Other than no rash, is there a certain amount of itch that you call about or just any time you got itching? Is it always on the hands and feet or is um, you know, in my experience, what I described is sort of the classic presentation, but it turns out to be pretty variable, mm-hmm. and all these women actually don't look the same. So I think if you have a concern, you just need to take it to your provider and get evaluated. And and for you, does that always mean a blood test? Uh, usually. Um, some cases are confusing and, you know, you're trying to sort it out and you use the blood test to try to help lean you one way or the other. But, you know, things are always, uh, you know, complex, as you said, because the blood tests and the symptoms don't show up at the same time. One of the things that appears to be pretty clear about cholestasis is that symptoms will come first and lab abnormalities will come later. So you could have symptoms that seem pretty typical for cholestasis and do all the lab work and it turn out normal. There was one study where the researcher identified a group of these women who had pretty typical symptoms for cholestasis. Blood work was all normal, followed them over the course of the pregnancy, and eventually all of them developed lab abnormalities. Labs. Wow. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So, so the symptoms come first. Does that maybe mean that there's other things that we're not picking up in the blood? Or just that it... Perhaps. I mean, because that means she's so sensitive to the backup of the bile acids unless there's something else going on as well. I I mean, it's more likely something just about the nature of the disease because that's not unusual. That's a very common clinical course. You, You know, get symptoms first, labs look normal, and at some point later on down the road, the labs look abnormal. The clinical picture shows itself. Yeah. Um, you said you test for two things, bile acid and liver and enzymes. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is, let's say, normal for each of those things? And what is considered outside the normal range? Yeah, the, the liver enzymes, they have a published normal range. And um, those are generated by, they'll take a group of 1,000 people, do the blood tests, and kind of cut off like from the 10th to 90th percentile or 5th to 95th percentile as and define normal. that as the normal range. Okay. And we're talking about numbers like, I mean, I don't have these completely memorized, but let's say something like uh, 20 to 35, you know, what, whatever the units are. Mm-hmm. And 
when you're talking about abnormalities of liver enzymes, it's usually how many times abnormal they are. So they will begin to double, triple, quadruple, mm-hmm. and then you're sort of looking well, at an abnormal really test. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Now, for the bile acids, different labs will give different ranges. So anywhere, usually somewhere in the range of like 10 to 20 will be defined as an quote-unquote abnormal. However, in my mind, abnormal should not be what it says on the paper from a laboratory, but it should be something that has a meaningful clinical outcome. Okay. What does that mean? So in the the big concern with cholestasis, which we have not really gotten into in this conversation We're headed there, yeah. yet, is that it's not so much a problem for the mother, other than that it can be an absolutely, incredibly uncomfortable condition because of the itching. Yeah. The itching is really um, bad. But it's not dangerous for her health. And after the pregnancy is over, the condition resolves and the symptoms go away. Okay. So the largest concern really is for the baby. Uh, mm-hmm. It's been recognized that when cholestasis is pregnant, there's a slightly higher risk of preterm birth. That's one thing. And then more concerning than that, there appears to be a higher risk of sudden stillbirth compared to the general population. And that's a terrible concern. Right. Um, So even though the mother is suffering these terrible symptoms, the one that is really at risk is the baby. Because the bile acids are dangerous for the baby? Well, presumably, um, but that's not actually worked out or known. Um, So we know there's a correlation of increase. Right. But the mechanism is not Not known. And whether it's even the bile acids that are involved is not known. One of the thoughts was maybe it has something to do with uh, an arrhythmia that the bile acids cause. And there are laboratory studies where they take rat heart cells and they bathe them in these bile acid solutions and you get all these arrhythmias in the heart cells. Mm. But that's just theoretical Mm -hmm. and it's a lab study. And there you know, been some thought maybe it causes acute and sudden spasm in the umbilical cord. But it's not really known. When they have looked at these cases of stillbirth and, you know, done autopsies and so forth, trying to find what was the mechanism of death, they haven't really been able to find an explanation. So at this point in time, it's a little bit unknown what the mechanism is. Except they know that there's a higher rate of stillborn Mm -hmm. when there's cholestasis. Right. Sure. And uh, obviously nobody wants to mess with that. So it sort of make it a little bit challenging to figure out to do clinically. I mean, first of all, if, if you find out in your first trimester that you have cholestasis, what can you do about that? Yeah. Well, one of the reassuring things is that the vast majority of the stillbirths happen late in pregnancy beyond 37 weeks. Okay. Um, now, I, I have seen a handful of cases over the course of my career of stillbirth you know, earlier, like in the 30s somewhere. But usually those cases are associated with very, very high levels of bile acids in the hundreds. For bile acids, it's I think it's micromoles per liter or something okay. like that. But, um, so you're seeing earlier cases if the bile levels are dramatically high. Right. So is there some kind of, it just sounds like there's not enough information to know like how high is too high. That's absolutely correct. I think there are many gaps in our knowledge about this um, condition. And as a result of that, there is no consensus guideline to guide management for people to follow. As a result of that, 
you see tremendous variation in practice. And you know, over the years that I've been a, a maternal fetal medicine specialist, I've seen OB providers who will end the pregnancy at 35 weeks mm-hmm. uh, on a sort of routine basis. I've seen other providers that let the pregnancy go to 39 weeks. Over the years, there kind of seemed to be a gravitation towards 37 weeks. Mm-hmm. And I think for, for many years, that was a very common practice. There was a study. Does it depend at all on the actual number? Um, I mean, the biology. So that was confusing. So many, many years ago, we, we didn't have very good data on this. There was some thought that you began to be at increased risk of stillbirth when the level of bile acids was over 40. However, there were some case reports of stillbirth with bile acids under 40, which kind of leaves this residual concern that maybe you're still not safe, even with bile acids under 40. So there was just a lot of confusion about which moms are at risk and which pregnancies need to be ended and which pregnancies are is safe to be left to continue. So because in the modern day era, neonatal care is so good and outcomes of babies that deliver at 35, 36, 37 weeks tend to be really good, I think in general our specialty has been erring on the side of delivering earlier. But I'm sure it's the case that we've been delivering a lot of babies earlier than you know what needed to be done. Is there, because sometimes you can do non-stress tests when you're worried about things, would a non-stress test give you any feeling of safety if everything looked good, or is this so sudden that? So that's a great question. Um, It's believed that this is a sudden death and that the non-stress test is probably not helpful as a preventive kind of surveillance measure. That said, they're pretty commonly done, <laughs> but it, it might just be an exercise in making us you know, feel better and whether it's really you know, having any impact in terms of preventing stillbirths, I think is a very open question. This is a really tough topic because Absolutely. you're a very mellow OB and MFM in particular, and um, we don't have enough answers. It sounds yeah. like there's just too much unknown right now. Yeah, so I mean, it... there's, there's, yeah, you know, think about the following. We're trying to make decisions about bile acids, right? And there's so many things we don't know about bile acids. For example, we don't know the natural history of what bile acids do. Do they gradually increase over time in a linear fashion? Do they fluctuate and go up and down over the course of weeks? Do they fluctuate up and down within the course of one day? If you test somebody's bile acids and you get a number, is that really reflective of what their bile acids are in general? Or is it just a number that you happen to get at that point in time? Generally, when we check bile acids, we may do it every several weeks or so. Mm. It's not the kind of test we do uh, you know, one day after another. So, so you can see the pattern, the normal yeah. pattern. Another problem is what we talked about previously, that the turnaround time for this um, test mm-hmm. in general is about five days. Yeah. So once you get your result, you know what it was five days ago when you drew the blood, but you don't know what it is today. Right. And mm-hmm. um, so... It, it almost seems like a possible remedy here would be to get the production of bile back on the road somehow, <laughs> right? Because then this... Back into digestion. 
back into better yeah digestion. you're talking about Not if you could fix screen. the underlying cause yeah yeah that's always the uh i wonder if there's a homeopathic remedy for that it sounds very simple well yeah. but i'm curious now i'm going to do some research into that look we're all learning yeah. uh well i have more questions for both of you so let's take another quick break and we'll be right back Welcome back to the Informed Pregnancy Podcast. We are talking about cholestasis of pregnancy, otherwise called ICP. And so far, it's been pretty mysterious and bleak, but there is some good news when it comes to cholestasis. Yeah. Um, you know, over the, the years, uh, I began to sense that there was kind of a, I, I don't know, a, a conventional wisdom coalescence around delivery at 37 weeks. Which the nice thing about that is, you know, delivering fewer babies at, you know, 35 weeks, which, you know, we saw a little more commonly um, previously. The only thing that I've ever seen published in terms of guidelines, there's a there's a committee opinion published by ACOG. So ACOG is the uh, mm-hmm. American Congress of Obstetricians, Gynecologists, sort of like the guiding organization for uh, OB-GYNs in the United States and many countries around the world, you know, follow our guidelines. Uh, so they published a committee opinion this year that lists indications for early delivery, you know, whether that be for reasons like diabetes, hypertension in the mother, lupus. And for the first time, this diagnosis of intrahepatic cholestasis of pregnancy showed up on this list. Mm-hmm. And what what they say about it is that delivery is recommended between 36 and 37 weeks. Mm-hmm. Now, there's really no details about who are we talking about? Is this a mother with classic symptoms and normal labs? Are abnormal labs required to make this diagnosis? There's sort of still a lot of absence of clarity about exactly what to do with these moms. The two things that I would say that are kind of good news about cholestasis, number one is it's terrifying to listen to a conversation about a condition that puts you at risk for stillbirth in your baby. Mm -hmm. So one thing to talk about is what level of risk are we talking about? So it's probably something in the neighborhood of like two to 4%. If you're diagnosed with cholestasis. If you're diagnosed with cholestasis. That stillbirth uh, rate is two to 4%. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, This, and this is from older data. So we're not talking about a 30% risk, a 60% risk. It's somewhere to two to 4%. Over the years, I've taken care of many, many, many moms with cholestasis. And I really don't remember a lot of stillbirth cases. I do remember some, so the risk is not Mm -hmm. zero, but you know, you shouldn't feel in a panic like, oh my God, I have cholestasis. My baby's going to die. It's not at that level. Just two thoughts before we get to the second piece of not so terrible news is number one, that older study is presumably, you know, all the cases, meaning even ones that were allowed to go until 38, 39 or 40 weeks. Right. But nowadays we typically try to get the baby out sooner than that. Right. Uh, which would presumably lower that two to four percent number to a lower number. The other thing is you're an MFM, so when OBs have cases or midwives have cases where they detect or are concerned about cholestasis, they end up in your lab. Is that fair to say? Very often, yeah. So meaning um when you talk about the number of cases that you've seen, it's gonna be higher than a typical OB. I mean OBs yeah. are or sending their cases to you. That has to be true, yeah. Right, 
Okay. Um, what's the second item? Okay, so the second item is uh, there was a recent meta-analysis that was published. So a meta-analysis, it's a study that's done where you basically identify all the other studies that have been published on this topic, and you try to combine them into one mm -hmm. to come up with a summary of like what is all this data telling us. So this um, was published this year, and it was a really big number of cholestasis patients. It was, it was over 5,000. And, you know, smaller studies very often give misleading results. And the larger the study is, that's something that adds to the strength of it as being more likely to be actually true at the Accurate. conclusions of the and study. And more reliable. Yeah. So one of the findings of this study was that if the level of bile acids was below 100, the risk of stillbirth was not increased above the population baseline. Well, that is a piece of good news. So now that doesn't mean the risk of stillbirth is zero. Zero, sure. It means it's not increased compared to other moms. You know, the risk is never zero. There's always a, a mm -hmm. tiny risk of that. And that the excess risk of stillbirth was found in women that had levels over 100. Mm -hmm. So this is a new piece of data. There are probably a lot of providers that haven't come across this yet. It definitely has not made it into any guideline anywhere. But it strikes me as much better information than anything we've had before and potentially could be reassuring to, you know, most women with cholestasis have levels under 100. Mm -hmm. I mean, you're usually talking about, you know, numbers like 17, 25, you know, this kind of range where they're sort of a, above the upper limit what the laboratory defines as, you know, abnormal when you start seeing numbers like 60, 80, those are a lot fewer and far between. Mm -hmm. So that's a much smaller population of women. Uh, so if this pans out, that may be very helpful at, number one, being reassuring for women who find themselves in a category where the bile acids are elevated, but only mildly so. Mm -hmm. And number two, helping us to limit the number of pregnancies that we have to and unnecessarily early. Mm -hmm. yeah. When the um, cholestasis diagnosis comes in on a home birth client, is that the end of home birth for that client? Yeah, usually. I, I can't think of a situation where we proceeded at home. And I think that what makes home birth safe is that you guys are constantly monitoring. Yeah. Um, and I think people who are not familiar with midwifery don't realize how much monitoring and testing you do throughout the pregnancy. Um, mm -hmm. much like an obstetrician would do throughout a pregnancy. And when you find things that are outside the grid, then you transfer that care to a medical. This is something that would clearly be considered higher risk. It's definitely high risk, yeah. And, and that's how we've always related with it. Yeah, and so those certain things make home birth no longer a good option. And it sounds like this is probably one of them. Well, because we, you know, 36 weeks or, I mean, 37 weeks is considered term. Mm-hmm. When the for home birth to have a baby at 37 weeks, the mother's body or the baby or the bag of water broke. So mm -hmm. it was a natural occurrence. Mm -hmm. Inducing at 37 weeks is a whole other story. Right. That's not, and some doctors have gotten in trouble with that because the baby's lungs were not fully mature. Sure. So we can't even induce at home at 37 weeks if that's considered an option. Well, I do have this question. Other than 
monitoring. So, so induction is an option. It doesn't have to be a cesarean birth per se. Right. Is the birth managed any differently, either from a monitoring or treatment perspective? No difference. Labor is labor once yeah. it's going. I wonder what the percentage is of babies having difficulty in labor when the moms are induced. In general. Um, no, with cholestasis. With cholestasis. Like if they're induced, yeah, they're induced they're, early, uh-huh. of course. So I'm not sure if that lends towards some a higher rate of complication for the baby. Well, certainly the earlier you induce, the less likely it is to be successful. So that percentage yeah. goes down, you know, the earlier you go. So that... Successful to a vaginal, vaginal birth. To birth. a vaginal birth, right. So that... Um, so there's going to be a relationship there, and I don't know if it's the cholestasis physiologically per se or if it's really mm-hmm. just an effect of the earlier gestational age that you're seeing. That's an interesting question. Mm-hmm. I mean, I definitely, I, I think there are probably so many things physiologically going on in the process of labor that we have no idea about. Yes, agreed. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, I guess my last line of questioning about cholestasis outside of either having had it before or having it run in the family or having it run down ethnic lines. Are there other things that make someone more likely to have it, to get it? Um, I can't think of any other risk factors off the top of my head. I think it appears to be that moms who have hepatitis C have a higher incidence of cholestasis. That makes sense. Um, But you wouldn't do anything... Different. Really differently, you wouldn't test for it if you didn't have symptoms, and if you develop symptoms, you test for it. And there's not not a higher rate with women that have a history of hepatitis B? Uh, I haven't read that association. Yeah. That's a good question. Logical. So, you know, one time, this is a one-time scenario, a woman had cholestasis, and she was induced at 37 weeks. She gets pregnant again, and her bile acid showed up early, 12, 14 weeks. Wow. And she was intent on reversing it. And she did. What did um, she do to try to reverse it? Yeah, I've got to contact her. <laughs> she was, I know she drank a lot of water, a lot of water, at least a gallon a day, which is a lot of water to me. Mm. And she also took um, a lot of herbs. And the doctor was following the bioacids. We were, you know, also seeing her. Her bioacids, I think, went as high as 40 something. She brought them down below 10. And the doctor said we were able to have home birth. And she had home birth. Yeah. Well, that's another piece of good news. Because I wondered that that question, either naturally or medically, when someone's diagnosed with ICP, are there things that you could do, A, for the symptoms, just to get more comfortable? You talked about how uncomfortable that itching becomes. And B, to try to reverse it. Yeah. So the most commonly used medical therapy is a medication called Ursodiol. And it's a synthetic bile acid. I'm not even sure exactly what the mechanism by which it works, but it has been shown to reduce the bile acid levels. And also in many cases, it brings on some symptomatic relief for the mom. Okay. So that appears to be the most effective therapy that's out there currently. Is but, the goal other than comfort to try to bring her down to levels where we're no longer concerned? You know, therapy is not that specifically targeted. Mm -hmm. And again, whether... So you're still just trying to buy time till that, let's say, 36 to 37 week. Well, you know, there are multiple endpoints. So if you can make the mom suffer less, that's valuable in and of itself, whether or not you change the risk to the baby. And so it seems to be helpful for that purpose. 
it seems to bring down the bile acid levels. Now, whether that is helpful for clinical purposes or not, I think we don't know. TBD. And so it, it, it's just, uh, you know, because of those observed effects, it is used clinically. But what is actually going on there, I think there's a lot of question marks there. Any natural things? I mean, you, you mentioned like uh, um, potentially flushing. Well, this woman, she did her <laughs> research. She was a, a, a genius and she was intent. But are there things that people talk about that are helpful for the itching? Oh, itching. Well, um, yeah, herbal supplements really help with itching. It really Mm -hmm. does. I found that even if they, even if they have rashes, which is you get a little bit of peace of mind there, but it really can help a lot. Mm -hmm. Are there uh, specific supplements? Yeah, dandelion tincture, nettles. Are these two like? Liver cleansing? They're called, they're called liver support. Liver support. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, liver support is, I don't really know how liver support, quote unquote, works, but I know it works. Yeah, we have clients talk about it. Usually they it's recommended by their midwife. and they, you know, Again, it, not necessarily for cholestasis, just different types itching. of itchiness. Yeah. yeah, and that's what yeah, usually we do right away. But if a woman that's pregnant, if she does her research and she comes back real scared, I feel like my hands are tied, and we have to get those blood tests. Sure. Have to. Sure. Instead of giving us, like, maybe two weeks of, can we reverse this? Yes. And then we get a bile acid, and then it's normal, and then she's not classified in this category. Because even if she takes the medicine, she always has cholestasis. She's going to be induced. Right. Yeah. Because that is the standard of care. Well, my hope is that we'll be able to come back and do another episode on cholestasis in the not-too-distant future with a lot more data. And therefore, hopefully, be able to come up with better clinical ideas on how to get more comfortable and how to protect the baby better and manage cholestasis with yeah. uh, more confidence and just, you know, yeah. better outcomes. It's always a scary thing because stillbirth occurs even in normal scenarios yeah. that we have, no, we have no known reason for. So... Once anyone, whether it be a midwife or a doctor, experiences a stillborn with their patient, it's it's ghastly. Sure. You never want to repeat it again. Never. So that kind of makes that flexibility a little harder, you know, to follow a different route. You know, a woman doesn't want to. She wants a home birth, wants a home birth, wants a home birth. She wants a healthy birth. A baby dies. She would have had that C-section any old time. In a flash, of course. Yeah, so it's really... It's it's heart wrenching. Right. Normally, you can take the data and you know the risk and yeah. the benefit, and you can make a choice. Yeah. But here, we just don't simply don't have enough data. So right. I hope that changes in the not too distant future. Um, as always, I want to thank you guys for being here and sharing your knowledge and your experiences. Of course, our discussions are just discussions. When you have symptoms come up or you have uh, data that comes up in your own pregnancy, really important to discuss it with your provider and make an informed choice. For more information about these clinical topics, you can always visit our website, informedpregnancy.com.